Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Glenn Stahlsmith. Glenn is a pastor who serves two United Methodist churches in rural North Carolina. He's also a Ph.D. student at Duke Divinity School. For 12 years, he lived in the Philippines, working as an ethnomusicologist with Wycliffe Bible Translators. He's also the reviews editor of Global Forum on Arts and Christian Faith. I give you Glenn Stalsman. Glenn, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. This is, since we do this remotely, this is a coronavirus-free, you know, free of corona danger. This, the, the virtual, uh, this, this, this virtual, uh, this virtual link right here. Yeah, we're we're not going to infect each other with the coronavirus. No, we won't. I mean, at least we we uh, we hope we won't. Right? This is this is this is our. This is like uh, people are like freaking out. Like this is yeah. This is a big. Uh, yeah, as we're recording yeah. this, I think I saw that they like shut the stock market down. Yeah, it's a uh, pretty crazy. And apparently, uh, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, she was talking to some doctors who were looking at pictures of this thing under the microscope. The boys in the lab did a good job on this one. This is not a. Uh, this is not a natural evolved. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, they were said you could see it's like there's all these str- weird strains of things. It's just like uh, yeah, there's something got out of the lab. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. But here, hey, we press on here. It's an axis. And, uh, you know, so this is uh, one thing that people can do if they aren't able to get out, they can sit and listen to this podcast. That's right. That's right. So our first text comes from the book of Exodus. We have Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, where the Israelites are parched and uh, they are a little frustrated with Moses. And, you know, they they kind of ask him, what, what did you bring us out here? Just kill us and our children, our livestock. And Moses cries out to the Lord. And, and the Lord uh, says, take your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I'll stand there in front of the rock at Horeb and strike the rock and water will come out and people will drink. And so this is, um, yeah, this place where God is, uh, they call it um, the place Massa and Meribah because it's, the Lord Israelites quarrel with the Lord and saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here's sort of the question perennially of the faithful in struggle in times of challenging situations. I think it's, you know, is the Lord really with me? Yeah. I, I think Lent is one of those liturgical seasons where they try to sync up the readings so that at least, at least the old Testament and the gospel, my understanding is try to follow a similar theme. And so uh, in order to get us to Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, this is a great story of provision of water with lots of allusions, lots of links that you can make to that. And and I think that key question there on the last, on verse seven here of this reading is also the key thing that links uh, the dialogue between the woman at, at the well with Jesus. Um, is the Lord among us or not? And and we'll get to that when we talk about John 4 in a minute. But I, I think that's your connecting point. If you're going to want to try to find a place to make these texts uh, talk to each other. That seems to be the driving force here um, between the two, between at least at least those two readings in the lectionary this week. Yeah, and, and this um, 
text has sort of a, a doublet, like in numbers. There's a story just like it, numbers, which is interesting, which is kind of a little different. And there, he's told to tell the rock before their eyes um, to, you know, for, to for, to bring forth water. Um, and he strikes it, which is a mistake. I guess he strikes I, I it twice. Like, he strikes yeah, it twice. Mo- numbers, yeah, yeah. Is he putting his faith here in the staff or something? And is that you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you have this doublet, and and you do have this this sense too, right? That the wilderness can be both a place of finding God and a place of of sort of walking away from God, and it's it's both for Israel. I mean, it's it, you know, it it's a place where they often see God and connect deeply with the Lord, and also it's a place where you know they fall away, and and also you know for Jesus, it's a time of the wilderness. From last week's reading, is a is a time where unlike the Israelites, it's a place where he struggles and prevails. Mm, indeed, and one of the things that I find really interesting in this account in Exodus is that. Just the chapter before, in Exodus 16, you have the provision of the manna, so that the people have food to eat every day. And that it seems to be just such a quick turn to the people going to Moses saying, have you brought us here to kill us? Um, and I think that speaks to a couple different, uh, speaks to human nature on a couple different levels. One is that if you're thirsty or hungry, uh, you can have a really short memory about how God has provided previously. Um, and 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 also. Um, just that uh, Moses um, Moses continues to have to have to wait on God at every step of of this journey. There is no uh, there's no plateau. It seems where Moses just gets to coast. Uh, he has to continue to intercede for these people, and 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 even when it seems like all the needs have been met at one point, there's going to be around the turn another instance where they have to wait on God and and, and to quarrel and question and test. Is God really here? Yeah, and you know what's interesting here, I think, is Paul in First Corinthians ten looks at this experience of manna and the water of the rock from the rock as as sacramental, right? And just as and connects the the you know the rock being Christ, and so the, these Corinthians are on a pilgrimage too, just like the Israelites. And it's interesting because you you could you know there's this sense the danger of tasting and knowing that the Lord is good, and yet also being cut off you know, because you walk away. And so here, I mean, I think it, it, that's interesting that here there's this, I like that you brought up the, the, the manna because it's, it's sacramental. It's, 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 it's this God providing, um, you know, extraordinary, what do they say? We say, you know, God take these ordinary things, you know, mm-hmm. for extraordinary purposes in the Eucharistic liturgy. And so here you have this, you have this provision of this extraordinary provision. Indeed. Yeah. And I think it is important if you're going to delve into this, that people are, people who are tuned in a little bit, anyway, uh, to what the scriptures are saying throughout the Old Testament, are going to notice that this is very similar to that text in, in Numbers 20. Um, it's it's not the same text. Uh, you've got an account here in, in Exodus where the people are are moving from Egypt to the covenant. And then the that, that account in Numbers is, is a moving from the covenant towards the promised land. And so it seems like the expectations of the people are a little bit higher or the, the expectations that God has on the people are higher after the covenant, which may be the reason for uh, such harsh condemnation of Moses for striking the rock twice when he should have just spoken um, and allowed the water to pour forth. And and people will remember that that's that Moses's punishment on that is that he doesn't get to make the journey the rest of the way. He won't he won't get to go into the promised land as a result of that. Yeah, that, yeah, that that yeah, that becomes a 
a defining kind of uh, story in Mo- for Moses's life of this sort of failure. Indeed, yeah. to our epistle reading, which comes from Romans 5, 1 through 11, this great passage where Paul is talking about how we are justified by faith uh, through through what Christ has done for us, and that, that you know, and that how this came about, where I love this phrase, while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And mm. rarely someone will die for a righteous person, uh, but for you know, but sometimes it might happen, but God does this for us while we're still still sinners. And so that is the rhetorical power here of what we now boast in. Yeah, we United Methodists use verse 8 here liturgically in our standard service of word and table in preparation to come uh, to receive communion as, as a pardon to the congregation after everyone has confessed their sin together. Uh, the pastor says, not verbatim from the NRSV, but but pretty close that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that proves God's love toward us in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. A lot of United Methodists anyway, might not know that that's a quote from scripture, but hopefully yeah. if, they, if they hear it read, I don't know what other traditions might, might use that or not, but um, it, that's worth making a connection. If you're a Methodist preacher and you're going to look into that passage this week. Yeah. And I think also it, it's interesting. Um, George Hunzinger wrote a commentary on this text for the lectionary, the the Erdman's lectionary commentary, and he notes something interesting in verse eight. He says, "It is not our repentance that leads us to grace, but God's grace that leads us to repentance. God does not love us because we're lovable, but we are lovable because God loves us. God's love is shown to sinners, odious and unrepentant, precisely while they are still sinners. It is for these whom Christ died." That is why God's love is called agape rather than eros. It is a love that not only love, it is a love that loves not the lovely, but the unlovable, even at the cost of death. It's a fathomless love that transforms sinners into those who are righteous, the ungodly into the godly, and enemies into friends. Paul knew this truth perhaps better than any other apostle, for while he was still a persecutor of Christ and the church, with not one thought of repentance, grace had stopped him in his tracks. Yeah, and I think there are are clearly ways that you can make connections with the gospel reading for this week in John four. Um, the idea of this grace being of going before being for uh, being offered to people of every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. When Jesus makes this cross-cultural connection with the Samaritan woman, you have this, you have this grace acted out. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's again, like uh, Paul's all has said that I've heard him say that, that, Paul's theology of Paul teaches what Jesus lived. Basically, the Pauline mm-hmm. understanding of grace is really his teaching out what Jesus lived in the Gospels, and that's that's where the deep connection is. And you can see that really well uh, in in these, you know, in, in this kind of passage where he's talking about exactly what, you know, exactly the kind of interaction that will follow in the gospel. Yeah, and I, I have to confess my own preaching reflexes are to either pair the gospel with the Old Testament or or maybe the Old Testament and the epistle. I, I rarely use the epistle and the gospel as, as a lens, as one for the other. I'll rarely pair them together in a sermon. Um, but maybe this is a good week to, to test that out. Yeah, also I think what's interesting here with Paul is this whole, the, the, the this 
laying out of of how the gospel works in our lives. You know that you stand in this in this grace, and not only that, you can boast in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character and, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is interesting because there's you know the the objective and the subjective. Mm. you know, dimensions of the Christian life. And so it's our subjective experience is built on objective realities, right? On on what God has done through Christ and what God is doing through the Spirit. And so in these objective realities, ground our subjective experience and, and and allow that to be like, as Calvin would say, a theater of God's glory. Mm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's I find that really it's one of these things that, that you know, it, it, in some sense, I feel like we're almost getting, you know, a, a picture of... of just how the objective and the subjective work out here in this little passage in the Christian life, like how what God has done and is doing, you know, affects us on the ground in our hearts. I, I was thinking about how to read this, like physically, how to how to proclaim it, how to have it read uh, from the from the lectern of the pulpit on Sunday. And I read this as Paul being breathless, just like the words are tumbling next to each other and 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 getting, you know, he, he hardly has enough time uh uh, to get everything out because he's so excited about how this works. And part of me wants to slow down and say, well, let's, let's dig into to these first 11 verses of Romans five. Let's, let, let's, let's bathe in it. Let's uh, luxuriate in, in this, in, in this message. And then, but the, the other side of me is like, well, maybe it just needs to come all at once. Like <laughs> maybe it does need to come quickly. Um, and I don't know if other people read it that way, but to me, it just seems like, Paul has has worked through a significant theology in the first part of Romans, and, and he's not necessarily at the full conclusion here in chapter five. But it seems like he's arrived at a big, you know, he, he begins with therefore in verse one. It, it seems like this is a good landing spot for him, and, and he's and, and he's wanting to get all of this at once. It's like now that we we've, we've worked out this sin and grace dynamic, here's all the goodness that can, that can result that even in suffering. Uh, this, even suffering can can result in endurance, which brings hope. And and this is all because of what Christ did for us. It, it just seems like Paul wants to get all this good news all down at once. Yeah, and you know, it, it, one other thing Hunzinger says in his commentary, which I, I think is insightful, he says, those who have been justified by faith do not exalt in themselves, but wholly in the gift of divine grace that promises to lift them beyond themselves into the, the glory of eternal life with God. And I think about, you know, Paul writing with this struggle between you know the strong and the weak, the people who are who see themselves as liberated from uh, Torah traditions and stuff like that, and the people that are more scrupulous and observant. And here, it's almost to both parties. Look, if you're justified by faith, you you don't boast in yourself, but you you only glory in in the grace of God and the cross of Christ and the glory and, and the hope of glory, which is not about you. You know, it's about God. And so for both parties, it's a sort of you know, you look away from yourself mm. and toward God, your Redeemer and friend. Indeed. On to the gospel reading, we have the woman at the well, John chapter four, which is, it's so interesting, right? Because this is such an interesting text in itself. And also it's interesting because it comes on the heels of another interaction with Nicodemus. Right. Yeah. Those are very clearly put together on purpose. 
John very yeah, much like, wants us to read the woman at the well right after Nicodemus. Yeah, and here you have, you know, Nicodemus, he meets at night. The Samaritan woman, he meets at noon. You know, he's Israelite. She's a Samaritan. He's a teacher. She's a housewife. He's a male. She's a female. He seems kind of impervious to learning, uh, and she is a progressive learner. You know, she's, she's, mm. she's, she's getting it. As, and he is teacher to Nicodemus, but more like prophet or messiah to her. So we see these two right. contrast, it's flip sides of, uh, you know, two, two different sides of the same Jesus interacting w- with two really different pe- sorts of people. Let me ask a practical question, Scott, and uh, how you as a pastor treat this. These, these readings from Lent are notoriously long. I mean, I, I think the assigned pericope is verses 5 through 42. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I chickened out last week and did not read all of the verses that were included for chapter 3. Um, what do you do in your church? Do you do you just say, okay, in Lent, this is heavy. We've got a long reading. We're going to buckle down and do it? Or Yeah, I, I just read the whole 17 verses, and I'll probably read the whole 37 verses this week. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, because it's a pretty dramatic story, and I think, like— it's interesting to include it all. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think I'll probably just read the whole thing. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And you might even want to start in verse one. Um, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why the the lectionaries decided to start in verse five. Um, I guess you have to. I guess you have to cut it somhere. Um, yeah. So yeah. Exactly. But uh, that's good. I you, I might take up that challenge myself and see if I can't if I can't read the whole thing. Uh, in church this week. It's just interesting too, because, you know, what's similar about Nicodemus and the woman at the wall is this sort of two tier, like, how can I be born again? What am I going to go back into my mother's womb sort of thing? Mm-hmm. And you have also a kind of missing the point at first here as well, where, where you know, the, the, he said, you know, if you knew the gift of God, you know, you'd, it, you, if you're asking, you know, you know, you're talking to, um, you know, you, you, you'd, You'd have you'd know you'd have living water, and she's like, "Sir, you don't have a bucket in the wells, Where do you get <laughs> right. living water? Are you great, Aaron, sister Jamie? You know." And then yeah. you know, it's it's interesting that living water is is usually associated in Israel's theology with the Torah and the teaching of the law, and 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 yet in Christ here, it's 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 almost a description of the Spirit and, and what. Christ is bringing, you know, in 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 the in the gospel. But it's just interesting because she's like, oh, wait, wait, what, what? Yeah, how do you? <laughs> like, she stays at the lower level until he gets her to the higher level. And 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 maybe you can contrast uh, uh, the woman at the well with Nicodemus, the other conversation partner, and his ancestors in the wilderness who didn't have the faith to ask um, and, and see within Jesus the source for the water. Verse fifteen, she says, "Sir, give me this water." So that I don't have to keep coming here. And even though she seems to miss the point a bit, she at least recognizes that Jesus is the source. And that's um, that seems to be something that's lost on Nicodemus. Seems to be lost in the in the in the uh, verses in Exodus seventeen. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then yeah, and then it's you know it's interesting because he has this he you know, he reveals to her you know she said go get your husband and come back. She says I have no husband. You're, you're, you're right. I have no free. Had you've had five, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the one you have now is not your husband. Uh, and that is, you know, because he holds up this mirror to her. She says, "I see you're a prophet." Um, and then he, you know, says he seems to. They get in this sort of interesting debate about where is the proper place to worship 
God, right? Is it is it on in this mountain here in Samaria or, or in Jerusalem? And um, you know, because they they Samaritans have you know only honor a certain part of Israel scriptures. They're looked at as outsiders. And Jesus sort of seems to say that you know, no, this is not. Uh, it's not about here. Their God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's so much to dig into here, and and. And as I was looking at this earlier, I I have in the past I confess preached the um, the the woman's serial seemingly serial marriage in the past as as a fault of hers. You know, here's this person of loose morals; she can't you know she can't stay faithful in a marriage. But I was challenged to to instead think of it as more of an issue as someone who is just completely pushed to the margins, someone who's probably barren and unwanted, uh, perhaps widowed more than once. And, and the current husband or the, the current, um, the current, uh, living situation where she's with somebody to whom she's not married, um, is probably not her choice. It's perhaps the brother of, of one of her previous husbands who's taken her into the house, uh, to provide for her as required by the law, uh, or custom, um, but hasn't extended to her the privileges of being a wife. Um, so, so here, here's someone who's really down and out, um, and and not just separated from Jesus by a bunch of of linguistic or cultural or, or religious barriers, but also just within society itself, um, someone who's really having a rough time of it. Yeah, 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 and there, yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting him pointing this out. It's almost like you know the the law afflicts, right, and the gospel comforts, right. Mm. <laughs> you know, they, they, so in some sense, he he brings out a need through this kind of mirror that is the law so that she can know the assurance of what the gift of, of real living water and real faith are. And, and, and he evangelizes her. Yes. Yeah. And she seems, she has the faith to ask the right questions. Um, She, not only does she um, want to know the source of the water, where, where can she get this, but also what's the right way to worship Um, even in the midst, even in the middle of her suffering and the difficulties in her life and whatever would drive her to um, be alone at the well in the middle of the day. Um, she's in spite of that, maybe because of that, she's able to ask the penetrating questions and get Jesus to speak. Some of these first uh, initial revelations of who he is like verse 26, for example, I am he, or, or perhaps really more accurately, he simply says, I am yeah. the one who is speaking to you. Um, making these bold messianic uh, claims, linking him um, to Yahweh, uh, the God of the Old Testament. And while Nicodemus seems to eventually get it because he takes Jesus' body with Joseph of Arimathea at the end of this gospel, she gets it in the right away. I mean, I, I, through this conversation, and she becomes an evangelist. And then she comes and tells the Samaritans, "Hey, and those people in Samaritan, he told me everything I ever did. This is amazing." And then they come and mm-hmm. see Jesus, and they come to believe. And here, this place is that's looked like. It's looked at, you know, scandalously by good Israelites, good Jews. They this becomes, you know, a, a place where the seeds of faith in Jesus are, are being sown. And and she gets a stamp of approval that all evangelists should look for. At the very end, her the townspeople say, "Okay, now now we don't have to believe your testimony anymore because we've really seen the Lord. We can believe yeah, Him directly." And, and I pray that all our listeners uh, will. Likewise, from this text, uh, where it's preached, see and hear the Lord who met that woman and meets us on the Lord's day. Amen. Glenn, thanks for doing this, my friend. Thanks, Scott. 
Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Glenn for coming on the podcast. You can find his stuff at MeaningfulWorship.Blogspot.com. And thanks to you again for listening. Till next time, friends, fare thee well.